Well, hello, Misfits, and we're here with Matt Seidensticker from Northern Rockies Research and Educational Services. Which means he is super in the moths. We can all gather that from that name. <laughs> so Matt has been a friend for a super long time. Yep. And he, he started off as a uh, owl guy. That's right. And then an entrepreneur. And then a really bad bartender. <laughs> and, and, and then back going into the sciences again. So we'll, we'll talk right. a little bit about the night shift. It seems like you have this... This whole uh, arc of your career of working at night. Yeah, that that's very true. Much to the, um, you know, to the demise of our, of my wife. You know, of course, right. right? You know, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I started um, working with the Owl Research Institute um, mm -hmm. when I was out of undergrad, and I worked with them for about a decade. And so, obviously, you know, owls. So mm -hmm. plenty of uh, plenty of night work there. And, and like you mentioned, now I'm chasing moths around so yeah i just can't uh seem to kick the nocturnal habit if you so will. what's next bats yeah, night well, jars that's <laughs> right well we've we've had some of that you know with my work in the mpg we've uh i've had plenty of that going on too um we can talk a little bit about that yeah. that's sort of how this moth thing got started in fact so let's uh kind of roll back to the mm -hmm. beginning and we'll start at the beginning <laughs> uh, we'll roll back to, to the beginning. And so you actually started out young, Matt, bright eyed, eager. <laughs> you played college basketball for the Montana Grizzlies. That's right. I did. Uh, yeah, you're making me feel old now. <laughs> oh, this is back when they shot the three throws underhand. Uh, pretty, yeah, almost. <laughs> so how, how do you, how do, because, you know, you don't see a lot of folks who are involved in athletics go into the biological sciences. Right. So, first of all, what kind of made you gravitate towards the biologic sciences? You know, I think, Rad, you know, you know this being a small-town Montana kid, that um, it was just my upbringing, you know, just being in rural Montana. Um, and I came from a family that was, uh, you know, really into hunting. Mm -hmm. and, and things like that and, and a little bit of a ranching background as well and so you know I just spent a lot of time as a, as a child outdoors and and so naturally I just had this kind of innate interest in animals um, and the outdoors and yeah and then once I got to you know college here in Missoula I mean obviously our program here mm -hmm. is like top-notch um, and so I just, you know, I, I mean, I was a kid when I was, I was younger. I had like, you know, I still have them. In fact, I tried to pass them off to my, my now 13 year old son, which he's like, what are these dad? But, you know, he used to have this subscription where we call them the safari cards. I called them right? Oh, yeah, where, where you get those. the little pack of like oh, yeah. cards and they'd have an animal and on the back, they'd have range maps. And, it, and so it was just always kind of something I was interested in. And, um, and, um, it just kind of carried through into my older years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you just, when you got to the university, you're like, oh, that's the direction I'm going to go. And yeah, exactly. And part of it too, my dad was a science teacher mm -hmm. in high school. And so, you know, when I first started out in college, I was actually a zoology major. So I was, I was, I was kind of interested more in like the molecular end and the maybe even like, you know, trying to pursue something in medicine sort of thing. Um, but you know, midway through my college, I, I switched to wildlife biology just because I, I I realized that it, you know, I wanted to be outside. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to be in a lab necessarily or, you know, looking at small things. Although now, well, kind we'll, of get back, we'll get back <laughs> to looking at very small so, things. Now it is. But so, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so when you, uh, you know, got done playing and now you're, you're graduated. Yep. The hardest thing about, and I can speak from experience on this too, is <laughs> as a wildlife graduate, finding a gig. In your field, I mean, you can find a gig washing dishes, but I right. mean, to actually find a job in biology can be really super tough. Yeah. And you kind of, did you make the jump right to the Al Research Institute? I did, yeah. And I, I was I was pretty lucky. Um, speaking of being a, a bartender or, you know, washing dishes or whatever, in fact, I met... Um, I met Denver at the depot when I was bartending yeah. and there, and he used to always come in, right? And one of the um, uh, waitresses had kind of, you know, told him that, hey, you know, this guy that, you know, he's graduating, whatever, he's really interested in wildlife and, and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, I met Denver kind of indirectly through there, and he invited me out um, into the field, um, sort of a, you know, kind of a, a test run, if you will, or whatever, to see what, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, so I was really lucky, you mm-hmm. know, to, to jump right in. Um, and it, you know, I got to go to Barrow that first summer with him. Um, and you know, I started. I was sort of like, now when you say Barrow, you mean Barrow, Barrow Alaska, Barrow, Alaska, right? And you're definitely doing snowy owl, definitely stuff. doing snowy owl stuff up there. And so, and it, you know, it kind of started out as like a sort of an internship mm-hmm. uh, sort of level role, but then eventually after that last or the first summer. Yeah, I mean, it evolved into into that, and it, you know, it was it. It still wasn't necessarily like full time mm-hmm. for a lot of those years, but I mean, like you said, I mean, we we often joke in Missoula, especially here, right? We've got more PhDs and lawyers washing dishes. And, oh yeah, you know, working at the coffee shop than anywhere in the oh, world. Oh, you're surprised where they're working at, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, so I was really lucky that way. And so you started off with Denver doing the Snowy Owl project, and then you then you, did you move on to these other projects doing things like sawwood owls and flams and I did, yeah, yeah. So I um, so I worked on the Snowy Owl project for seven summers, but in the, in the off season of that, I would work on the long-eared owls. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to be involved in some of the northern hawk owl research uh, up in Glacier Park, and then. Um, you know, then yeah, here and there we do we do little stuff like pygmy owls. Or, yeah, you know that those projects were, as you know, I mean some of those species are really hard to find, so they right. they were really sort of limited time windows, um, right? You know, throughout the year, but so it was mainly long eards and snowies, and uh, and then eventually I went to grad school mm-hmm. where I evolved into the the flammulated owl research, right? Um, and so that took place about ten years ago or so. Now, flammulated owls are my favorite. Yeah. Because one, they're teeny tiny. Yep. They're super nocturnal. Yep. They have all dark eyes. Mm-hmm. And they have a unique characteristic on what they choose to feed upon. That's right. <laughs> Which is a great segue into what uh, <laughs> what you're doing what now. What I'm doing now, right? And so that that is when I kind of, uh, as Rad was mentioning, flammulated owls eat mainly moths. Mm-hmm. You know, they're well known as uh, kind of insectivorous owls, and so that's where my my interest really started um, with moths was during my graduate program. Um, 
And and then once I got done with that, um, you know, I moved on to working with the MPG Ranch, which mm-hmm. is you know a local conservation ranch here in the Bitter Valley, and we uh, we started a project. We wanted to know what these nocturnal insectivores were eating. Um, mm-hmm. So like, flammulent owls was one. Mm-hmm. I mean, we knew that they ate a lot of like moths, but we also wanted to, you know, we knew that they eat other stuff too, right? Now so here's we, a question: When yeah. you say flammulent owls eat moths, mm-hmm. how are they? Eating moths. I have this two thing. I don't have a ton of time with flams. You know, maybe yeah. twelve hours total mm-hmm. on territory with flams. Right. But it seems to me, are they picking moths off of limbs, or are they picking them out of the air? I think predominantly they're they're sort of hover gleaning them. Yeah. So they're they're sort of you know a lot of these moths, especially like the um, spruce budworms, mm-hmm. um, some of these smaller moths um, that are associated with pine, they sort of gather around the, the needles and the branches mm-hmm. of the pine trees. And I think a lot of times that's what, uh, we've observed it before where they're sort of, yeah, they're just kind of just hovering around those those tree limbs and stuff and just picking them off. Just picking them off as yeah. they land there to, yeah. to do sexy stuff with each right. other. Right, and some of the larger moths, I mean, you see pictures of them with like a big like polyphemus moth or mm-hmm. you know something like that. Those, you know, whether they're getting those out of the air or not, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure right. I'm sure it's pretty easy for them just to grab them with their talons and you know switch it to the right. the beak or whatever. But I think for the most part, it's sort of a hover gleaning kind of like situation, it, which is really kind of cool for an owl to be doing. You yeah, know, to be really behaving, cool. to really, behaving really them. neat. You know, and, and when you watch them fly at night, I mean, they're easily mistaken for like a bat. Really. Yeah, you know, they they have these sort of long, slender wings and. And they, they have kind of rapid wing beats. I mean, they they often look like a bat, yeah. Right. And the other thing that I, I think is interesting is how cryptic they are. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember, like, when, yeah. uh, not Denver, who was, uh, God, my brain totally leaves me. Uh, the gentleman from the Forest Service who had some of the first ones up Paddy Canyon. Do you remember his name? Oh, um. Yeah, you're slipping my mind. But it was outside of Missoula, and he found, like, it was like this big ground-breaking thing. Like, oh, my. Right. There's this pea pine kind of associated species all the way up here in Montana. Right. How cool is this? And then you start finding them. Well, if we look here at night, we found them over here. We found them around the valley. And then Helena, they start finding a bunch. And now all the way out at Lewiston, they're finding them. Yeah. and They're not that rare. No, they're not. It's the classic thing of just, you know, people... Just never went out and looked for them, really, mm-hmm. right? And so that—that's definitely the feeling we got was, um, like you said, you know, they're sort of associated with those open pine forests um, with low understory. And and if you go out to any of these ridges in western Montana that have you know larger trees and open, mm-hmm. you're going to find. Places. You're going to. I mean, one of the big things that's limiting them now that I think is is um, you know they're obligate secondary cavity nesters, and so. Mm-hmm. One of the things we found in our study was is that well, uh, we should probably stop and tell the people on planes what obligate uh, okay. secondary oh, right, 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 right. So, so that just basically means they don't build their own nests. So they use like old woodpecker cavities, flicker holes, pileated, pileated holes. woodpeckers, exactly, right? Old hollowed out, you know, branches or whatever mm-hmm. that have decayed out, um, and so I think that they're, they're probably limited more by available cavities than anything because mm-hmm. you know i think the traditional forest management right was like let's take down all the snags and let's 
you know, let's get rid of this stuff. And so yeah, I know in our study area, we were up in Marshall Canyon and there was, it seemed that, you know, there was a, not a great density right. of snags, you know, and, and available things. So, um, but anywhere that you have snags and you have an open forest, you're going to find Well, like, I know one particular little spot on a little <laughs> ridge, that's a home run because <laughs> there's like, yeah. four or five huge snags right yeah. there and yep and, and they're out there every year they're there every year and and the other thing like you mentioned how cryptic they are so we i mean finding their nest is like really really difficult mm-hmm. it's it's i mean they're they're really nocturnal like you said and they're very very secretive and so you know basically what you have to do is you I mean, we'd have a, a what we called a peeper camera, right? So it was mm-hmm. like a telescoping pole with a little camera on it that you could stick in cavities or whatever. Um, and so we would inspect a lot of cavities. But the other thing is, is that not all cavities are created equal, right? So you'll see like a a really nice and and apparently flams they they're a small owl that like a big cavity. So so they not, want it really going down deep. They right? want it deep and they want a large entrance hole, even though they're so small. Versus like a pygmy owl, right? That'll squeeze in like a like a hairy like, woodpecker hole. Yeah, like a, a one-inch hole, and you know. So, and they like to nest really high up, these flams. Mm-hmm. And so, but the interesting thing we found is we surveyed, I think, 60-some trees with over 150 cavities. And mm-hmm. not, not all cavities. So you'll stick that peeper camera in a cavity, and it looks great from the outside. It's got a three-inch hole, nice and round, beautiful. You stick it in, and it might be only like two inches deep. Right, or which is barely excavated, more of a foraging hole. More of a foraging hole. They quit on it. Or you'll you'll look in there and it's got good depth, but the floor is all decayed and like spiky, or there's no floor at all. You know, and so it it, it's yeah. I mean, they get limited in that regard, but they're yeah, they're abundant. There, and so when you say that they're they're looking for these particular holes, I know and. Now, I'm not encouraging people to do this. I may have done this on a few occasions. <laughs> yeah. But every once in a while, you know, I'll take a stick and tap against a snag. And every once in a while, yep. more often than not, a flying squirrel will right. poke its head out. Every once right. in a while, northern pygmy. And a yep. couple times, I've had a boreal poke its head out. Yep. Yep. Do, the, do the flams just not react that way? They don't poke their heads out and take a look? You know, we've had mixed results. I mean, we've... we've um We've definitely had, um, like, if we were going to go to abandon nestlings and we were mm-hmm. roughing around down up below the tree, they would stick their heads out. Right. And, and we've also had results of banging on a tree and having them stick their heads out. Um, I think part of it with flams is, is, it's just the height that they nest in. So even if they poke their head out, it's a like a little it's, tiny. You, you might not even notice you it. Might even notice you it. might not yeah. even notice it. I mean, we had one nest that was 72 feet up. And it was in like this, like near the top of this big pea pine. And it wasn't even like a necessarily a uh, woodpecker hole. It was more of like an old branch that had broken mm-hmm. off and then sort of decayed. And, and it was it was shielded by like another branch that sort of came out in front of it. And so you, I mean, it took it, it took Matt Larson, my, my colleague, like I can't tell you, countless hours of like observation. And so basically that's what you have to do is if you suspect a cavity, you, you'll go out and just watch for feeding observations. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the males will come and bring food. And, and so you just have to sit there and watch and watch mm-hmm. and watch. And then when it's that high up, you're like, okay, what, you know, where did it go? Like, you know, right. what what cavity was it? You know, things like Which that. cavity was it? Because this tree has about 80 of them. Yeah, right. And so, um, but finally he nailed it down. So they're really hard. I think we only found like... In our three years of research, like four active nests, 
Right. So one was reused two years too. So, so um, there is a reuse. There, there can be. Yeah. And flams are really, um, they're known to like come back. They show fidelity to like their breeding mm-hmm. territories. So they'll actually, and we had a couple of recaptures for, we yeah. banded, caught, you know, and they caught them in the same territory the next year. And this is very, uh, well, this is very fecal, but <laughs> do flams do, f- uh, fecal sacks then? They take them away and drop yeah. them because they're not whitewashing the no, nest hole. No, no. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting you say that because they were the cavities we did, um, we're able to access and like get the nestings and stuff. They're very, very clean. So well, they're yeah, so obviously, they're obviously when they leave the nest the first trip, they're yeah, taking yeah. out the garbage. Yep, exactly. And that's probably smart, right? Because they, you know, I mean, they're nesting in these, in these cavities with big entrance holes that could easily be accessed by, you know, martens or squirrels mm-hmm. or whatever and stuff. So, well, um, and that leads me to the next question is kind of like when you bring up predators. What did you see in dep- nest depredation, or was the sample size so small that there never you never was observed? Or? We never observed in our study, um, and actually, you know, uh, Linkhart in Colorado, he's mm-hmm. sort of the you know he's been studying them for like thirty five years or something down there, and he's he hasn't observed a ton of instances either. It's mainly been like um, you know you'll find like. He found a, like an adult female in a cavity, like missing a leg and, you know, part of its head. It suspected like squirrels or something, you know, they'll just kind of go in there and rampage, just rampage. Right. You know, just, right. just kill stuff to kill stuff, basically. Um, so, I mean, some people say that, you know, great horned owls maybe, you know, sort of. But we actually had, you know, great horned owls and flaming owls calling in the same territories in the same nights, you know, so. Well, isn't there a segregation? I mean, what would be the competition? I mean, you have, right, you right. have, a, you right. have an invertebrate yeah. versus vertebrate. Yeah. Right. Segregation. I, you know, exhibitors, I think, have been implicated in a couple adult mortalities. Um, well, sure, if they catch them flying. Yeah, if they catch know. them flying or whatever, you know, uh, or if they spot them at a roost during the day or something, right. you know, they might just take them. Yeah, go You know, they, really, um, I think it's pretty rare, at least at least documented, you know. That's rare. It's rare. Um so, so you work flammulateds for how many years? That was from 2008 to 2011, so three years. So three years you're yeah. working just on flammulated just owls. Just on flammulated owls. Then this is all around Missoula. It, it was. We Our primary study area was up Marshall Canyon and mm-hmm. the Woods Gulch area. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a hotbed. I mean, yeah. Shh, let's, not that everybody knows. Not that everybody already knows, right? But then we also hit some historical areas from mm-hmm. when the Avian Science Center at the university did that statewide study. Now um, it really kills me. I can't remember that guy's yeah, name. Yeah, well, there was Amy Sillenberg was running yeah. at the time. And uh, then the, the other Denver. Um, yeah. The other Denver was involved. Right. And then. Um, and of course, you know, Dick, Dr. Hutto was running the show at that time. Yeah. Um, Hutto and then. Uh, then there was, you know, Christina Smucker, I think, was involved yeah. in that. And wasn't Dial doing a little bit of stuff with it, just tangentially, or was he just still on his acoustics and flight thing? Yeah, I think he more was into the yeah acoustics, acoustics and flight stuff, not so much the field work. But so they they did, you know, like a whole statewide. I think they surveyed every national forest in Montana. Yeah. Um, and so we identified a couple areas. There was one, you know, over by. Uh, 
Oh, by Clinton. Mm-hmm. And then some up in the nine mile area. Um, to, you know, pretty good hotbeds for him. So, but, you know, as a grad student, right, we were a little cash strapped. So it was nice having, you know, just right out our back door. Well, literally, <laughs> if you had to ride your bike to it, you could. You could. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You, you could. At night. <laughs> at, at night, doing surveys with a Fox Pro or whatever. Yeah. You know? So it, it was nice. And there was such a high density up there that we were, we were kind of able to, mm-hmm. you know. And so you work for Denver a long time. And Denver's still going. Still know? going. Yeah, yeah, as successful as ever. You know? Yeah, it's, 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 I've gotten a chance to go out with him a couple times. Yeah, he's the only guy I've ever seen hand catch a saw wet. Oh yeah, yeah, I don't know. Which it. is, I saw him hand catch a saw wet and a long ear. Yeah, oh yeah, which is craziness to me. He's a talented guy. He loves to climb trees and <laughs> he loves the. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's doing well. And so you you you're you're kind of done uh, at. ORI, O-R-I, which is Owl Research Institute. Mm-hmm. And then you, you start a business downtown. That's right. And then from there, you go to MPG. Now, when we say MPG, everybody around here kind of knows what it right. is. But can you explain what MPG is as an entity? You bet. Yeah. It's a little weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is, it, is a little, it is a little weird. So it's, it's, um, it's a private conservation property. It's about mm-hmm. 15,000 acres. Um, it's down kind of east of Florence, Montana. In the so in the Bitterroot Valley in of Montana. In the Bitterroot Valley. And, and, you know, they, it was an old cattle ranch. And it's basically kind of set up as like a, like a research field station in essence. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of uh, restoration goes on. Um, and just a lot of just pure like research. Everything from like soil microbes on up to big game. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I really can't tell you what like the end game is or why it was set up necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but all I know is it's just it's it's been such an invaluable resource to a lot of like biologists around the area. Right. I mean, there's just so much um going on and so many opportunities and um to get out there, you know, and, and to be able to do this kind of really, really neat research. Um so yeah, so I started working for their birds. Their bird crew, basically, mm-hmm. in 2015. So you're working for Kate, right? Kate, Kate Stone, right? Yep, she's she heads that up. And they were just starting projects on uh, common poor wills, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a nocturnal little night jar, right. as you know. Right. <laughs> which not, is another bird just like flam. Everyone thinks they're right. super-duper rare. Right. Turns out, not so much. Not so much. In fact, I was, you know, I travel around the state, and we'll talk about this more, but to do moss stuff, and I was hearing them. There's about everywhere I went last year in eastern Montana and south central mm-hmm. Montana. They're all over, you know, <laughs> they're all over the place. But but for western Montana, they were really, it was really like, you know, and we even detected them on our flam surveys. Right. You know, um, in, in during my graduate work. But so it was well, kind wait, of a, I think on, on uh, like, um, Right outside of Missoula, like Crazy Canyon. Crazy I've, Canyon, exactly. Had. Yep, that's where we had them in our flam mm-hmm. surveys, right? Yeah. And then up Marshall Canyon as well. Mm-hmm. But for Western Montana, it turned out, you know, MPG started kind of doing some surveys and it turned out that like MPG was like kind of a like hotspot for them, mm-hmm. you know? And so they, um, that was, you know, one of the first years they started um, kind of doing surveys and investigating. We did some telemetry work, um, looking at, you know, like root site characteristics mm-hmm. and just, you know, breeding phenology and some, just some basic like natural history stuff. Right. right? Um, 
And so did that for about a year or two. And then um, in about 2017, we were like, well, you know, geez, what are these things eating? Right. And then about that same time, um, 2017, they also got interested in Nighthawks, common Nighthawks. Um, And then Nate Nate Schwab, Mm -hmm. who works at Tetra Tech, and he was, you know, got his uh, degree at the university. He's a bat expert. Mm -hmm. He was also starting some bat work on the on the ranch, and so we were like, "Geez, what are what are these things eating?" Right? I mean, you know, we we know of like there's been studies, right, from stomach contents or people, right, you know, dissecting the poop to look for like insect parts and stuff. You're looking at carapaces, and yeah, that. stuff like that, right? Which only gets you down to like so order, far. order level, maybe family, right? Yeah, you know, and so. So it was around that time too that we discovered this um, molecular technique called DNA barcoding. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's basically barcoding is, uh, it's basically just like sequencing a really small um, part of a gene, a gene region that it's, that these gene regions are so highly conserved within species, but variable enough between species that you can tell, like you can take a tissue sample or whatever and sequence it and then compare it to like a reference barcode and be like okay that's what this species is or you know, right. that's not what animal this so like from. for mushrooms people do it what's it it's ITS. yeah yeah exactly right, right. and then so with mammal uh, with animals it's the co1 seal yeah which is a mitochondrial gene that and so you, you guys are literally taking were you taking fecal matter and then exactly trying? exactly so not only can you use it to identify species but you can use the technique to amplify DNA and fecal matter. Right. So it does like we, and this is the amazing part, but it takes all these gene regions and knows what they are and then magnifies them. Magnifies them, right. And then you sequence them out, amplify the DNA, and then then you can compare those sequences to um, reference sequences Mm -hmm. in these reference databases. And, um, like Gene Bank, Gen, Gene Bank's one of them. Uh, the one that we works or um, Gen Bank, Gen Bank, yeah. Gen the, Bank. the one we started working with was called Bold, so it's the Barcode of Life database, and it's. Um, and do they share data? They do. Those two, yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, and so the Bold program was is out of the University of Guelph in mm. Ontario, and in fact, their um, Paul Hebert, Dr. Paul Hebert, he's sort of considered like the father of DNA barcoding. He started right. kind of developing this stuff. And so their database is really cool because it's they're all connected to voucher specimens. So we're like GenBank, it's just like a DNA sequence and nobody really knows where it came from or if there's even a voucher insect that it's tied to or whatever. Bold. Right, right. It's more open source, right? It's so it's, it's more data. prone to like yeah. misidentifications, or you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's not easily verified sometimes. And so bold, you know, they require you to like take a picture and submit all this metadata and and all that stuff, um, so that you can link the the sequence to the animal, mm-hmm. which which is cool. Well, so we like, oh wow, you know, the light bulb went off. Well, so let's you know, nighthawks and poor wills. I mean, they leave behind these like really distinct like fecal pellets yeah. at their roots, right? And you can just collect just them up. Just gather them up. You just collect them up by the dozens, you know, and stuff. And, and they're really- You're gathering the poo. Gathering the poo, right? <laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, like obviously, you know, they'll do it in your hand or whatever right. too, you know. Um, but the cool thing about this um, DNA barcoding is, it, you know, it can work on older or, you know, things that have been exposed to the environment, right? Mm-hmm. So like- once the insect DNA is kind of in there, as long as it's not like 
highly degraded from like rain or like you know swings and, and high heat and stuff like that right it, it's pretty Got easily it. preserved and, and you have good success and so we were like okay let's just start collecting poop and let's have it like sequenced and see what these things are eating well we quickly learned so when you guys collect the poop are you going through and like macerating this shit and starting to magnify or are you sending it off to somewhere we just send it right they, to bolt so we they do all the pcr and everything, everything yeah which was slick because it, it's so the bold database, the main purveyor of that is the um, Canadian Center for DNA Barcoding, mm -hmm. which is based at the University of Guelph as well. And so they're, they were great. Yeah, we, we just communicated with them. And so we would just basically, once we collected the fecal pellets, we just put them in like a, a tube with some ethanol or whatever yeah. to preserve them. And then at the end of the year, we would just ship them all to the lab and they'd do all the data process all the DNA extraction and sequencing and everything. So, right. so that was really cool. I know there, you know, a lot of people, a lot of studies, you know, you can get these like DNA extraction kits that you just buy over. Like, I mean, you can just do it yourself and then you just send the DNA to them or whatever. You'll love it. <laughs> I know a fungus guy. Yeah. Who has a PCR lab in the backseat of his car. Yeah. Well, and that's where it's And he's literally days. getting them to like, oh, I got, I got yep. DNA on this yep. fungus. Now, to actually do the analysis, he sends it off. Exactly. And it's like eight bucks a sample or something. Yeah, exactly. And, and see, and that, that's where you have to weigh the cost effectiveness. So those kits are, you know, we kind of broke down the numbers. And so we were like, well, geez. And MPG certainly has the capability to do it in-house. Um, but by the time we kind of like looked at what it would cost to just send it to the lab and have them do it all versus buying those kits and doing it ourselves mm -hmm. at the time and all that. Right. It was like, in fact, I think we were saving a little money. Yeah, you're going to spend know? 16 bucks. Go ahead. Yeah. So yeah. we're just like, let's just let you do it. You know, we need to focus on finding these birds and the pellets. Um, well, one of the things we quickly learned was, is even though this technique is successful at amplifying the DNA and stuff like that, and that's not a problem, right? I mean, that's pretty straightforward and been well established is that even though like bold right has like i don't even know how many million sequences or whatever in their database the taxonomic coverage of species in the database is still relatively lacking especially for insects right where we're talking like right. one million described maybe up to 100 million that exist right know, something and like you that these weird clusters that have like a lot of a lot of data but a, it's a very narrow genera right very short sequences that you're actually amplifying and so like the you know the full barcode for co1 is like 650 some base pairs right but the actual stuff that they're amplifying out of the poop is only like you're lucky if you get maybe two, 200, you know, so it's just a fragment of that barcode. Kind right. Of thing. And so you, you really need to have like a, a, a solid reference sequence, right? Right. Or else you're not going to get somewhere. So we were like, we kind of realized that, especially for insects. So we were like, another light bulb went off. So you're, you're literally getting these reference and you can get it down to, and I know that this is so old fashioned because things have become so much more complicated. Compl complicated yeah with uh phylogenetics and everything else mm -hmm. that okay now we have this complete realistic picture of how things evolve and mm -hmm. how they're grouped but it's no longer in our nice neat you know order family genus that, that okay, that's all broken apart and now those have become literally uh ad hoc we just place those where we, right. we can group a large right. number of things <laughs> yeah and we'll call it an order but you know, on the right. level of things. So you're literally finding Montana, like, okay, we can get them to this 
big group, but we don't have any specificity down below. Right. And so it, it's it's pretty reliable to genus. Right. You know, I mean, you can most of the sequences that you get, um, you can pretty much count on like the solid to genus. But there are a lot, right, that only come down to family because sometimes there's sequences in like the database. And even though it's tied to a voucher, maybe that specimen hasn't like necessarily been identified by a taxonomic expert. Right. And so when it hits on that database or on that sequence in the database, it'll only go to like what taxonomy that's already been assigned, you know, and so. Or it just might not be in the database. And, and, so, then, and how many of those groups, say, especially with bugs, because it's so, yeah. one, the coverage is so small. Two, there's so much work to do. How many of these genus orders families all the way up uh, are you finding that are polyphyletic and they're not really real? Like we kind of lumped all these things together, right. but it's not real. Right, right. Well, and then and that goes like, I mean, you know, you get you, you do have instances, and I've learned this with moths, is they'll sh like numerous species will actually share traits of the barcode, right? So it's like, you know, so you're like, can you really tell what is what? You know what I mean? Um, and that's that's an issue as well, for sure. Right. You know? What's what's well? Well, what, you know, what is it actually even a, a its own, you know, a, is it a unique species? Right. You know, or is this all the same thing and it's just got a bunch of variability and it's it's genes and bear, you know. But, well, or are they in the process of going their separate ways, but they're they, not yeah. quite there yet. Right, right. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we haven't looked too heavy into that. Um, we, Although we do have a data set that we might be able to do that. But so we, we are kind of like, oh, my God. So if the results of these fecal cell, you know, our, if the results from our fecal DNA are only as good as like the reference libraries we're going to compare it to, and these libraries are lacking taxonomic coverage, we were like, well, why don't we make our own library? Why don't we? Just, why don't we start adding to the reference? And, right. Why don't we create our own local library? And, and and not only will it help you know build a taxonomic coverage in the bold database, but it will give us sort of this extra layer of cooperation because these are the taxa that we know were occurring in the area at the time we were collecting. Right. You know these these fecal samples, so it kind of you know gives you a little more like okay, well yeah. When you get the DNA, you're like, yeah, that's probably what it was eating, right? Because we caught it in the study area and it right. came back solid DNA hit and all, all that stuff. So we, in, in 2017 and, and 18, we sort of just in earnest started collecting nocturnal insects. Mm -hmm. um, and I was using a variety of techniques. Um, we started, you know, I started using light sheets, um, which is a common mothing thing where you hang up a white sheet and you put a light in front of it. and UV light. And yeah, all like a mercury, mercury vapor light and a black light. And then you just, the moths come to the sheet, you know, like a moth of the flame thing. And, yeah. And so we started, and then we use malaise traps too, which are, you know, pretty standard, um, just like net you know, traps that yeah. have a collection bottle on them, yeah. and, you know, insects. And so we started using a variety of those things. Um to collect, uh, to build our own sort of like local reference library. Um, and that's where this moth thing kind of just went off. I think the yeah. first year in 2017, we barcoded like 320 some species of moths just on MPG Ranch. So you're talking, now this place is huge. Right. Now you're covering all 15,000 acres? Not necessarily. So we, the first year we were just doing in basically in the areas where we were trapping um, the nighthawks and the poor wills. Mm -hmm. But that did cover, you know, a lot of the um, mid elevations, like sage step sort mm -hmm. of 
you know, con- conifer transitions all the way up to like all the way, all the way up into the, you know, mm-hmm. coniferous forest. And I think that first year we had maybe six or seven sites that we did like once a month um, from May, June, July, and August. Okay. So we would go out and, and one night we would sample, you know, we'd light sheet in those areas or whatever. And I'd, I'd hang up like an aerial malaise or whatever, you know, and stuff. And so that first year, yeah, it was like 300. And so we were just like, holy crap, you know, like what? Like, wow, you know, that's a lot of moths for this little ranch, you know. And then the next year we went and we added, you know, different sites and different areas and maybe a little more um, geographic coverage on the ranch. And pretty soon, you know, we were up to like 500 species of moths on the ranch, mm-hmm. you know. And and then at that point, um, after 2018, I sort of started um, kind of wondering, like, well, geez, like what? what was going on with moths in montana right i mean if we have a 500 species you know just in not like a great amount of effort right um what what is there any research going on with moths in montana what's going on and and so i really found out that there wasn't much you know besides um there's a fellow named bob martin mm-hmm. over in, in helena and he's been mothing in his backyard for like 20 years or something right, right? And so he's and working with like the LEP Society and stuff and submitting observations and geez, so I kind of got a hold of him and he's like, oh yeah, you know, I've I've photo and he doesn't collect it all or anything. He just photographs them, but photographs he, them on the sheet and then just they go on their observation. very way. And so he was like, geez, yeah, I've I've uh, I've some like sixteen hundred species over twenty years, just to, you know, in my little area in Helena, you know, and. Mm-hmm. I'm like holy crap you know this is this is like amazing right and so then you know part of this like you know you know this was like iNaturalist and then yeah. there's this this app called LEPS it's like a yeah AI thing that you can submit moths to and stuff. so we just you know as part of our kind of like I don't know due diligence or whatever with our MPG data we just started submitting pictures to like iNaturalist and LEPS and mm-hmm. stuff and well in 2019 I was contacted by a, a gentleman who um was really interested in one of our records mm-hmm. on the ranch. And his name is Chuck Harp. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chuck is the Rocky Mountain coordinator of the Lepidopter Society. Mm-hmm. And he's also a research associate at the C.P. Gillette Museum of Arthropod Diversity in, in uh, Colorado, at Fort mm-hmm. Collins, Colorado State. And so he kind of reached out and was like, hey, you know, can I get this record? I want to include it in my report, you know, at the end of the year and stuff. And then... One thing kind of led to another. We had a couple phone conversations, and I sort of grilled him about, like, because he actually lived in Great Falls and Billings for a time. Mm-hmm. He was in retail for his whole career, but he's like, he's a moth expert. He, he manages moths. Well, there's, there's not a lot of money in moths. No, well, there's not. <laughs> there, there's not a lot of money. And, and, you know, these other guys, it's it's funny, too, because, like, Lars Crabo, who um, he's, like, described, like, new species and this and then he's a radiologist right you know right <laughs> and there's all these he's just like these are serious like you know experts in the field and they just right. love doing it so anyway i started asking chuck like well geez what's been done with you know mazuma he's like very little he said montana has been historically an undercollected state right you know, we don't i mean given the vastness of the state and all the habitats you know who knows i mean we just we don't really know and so then the light bulb went off again and at that time too, I was sort of like, that's when I started Northern Rockies was in 2019. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I saw sort of this opportunity 
um, to to do some research on moths and in, insects in particular. Right. And it was about that time where you know the insect Armageddon talk was happening and right and things like that. And so I said, you know what? That's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start this organization, and we're going to. You know, we're gonna we're gonna start it with sort of a mission of like advancing scientific research mm -hmm. on insects and moths in particular. Um, and so, one thing led to another with Chuck, and the Montana Moth Project was born, and that's our flagship program. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the overarching goal, I guess you could say, would be. You know, we want so to, you're still working with MPG as this, and I do. And so that's yeah. part of the. There's there's layers of research. So right. we don't just do moths. I have a, a biennial insect biomass and abundance study that I do <laughs> on MPG. So every other year we have 18 sites that I set up. Uh, you know, malaise traps mm -hmm. and pitfall traps and pan traps, and then we, you know, we're just sort of monitoring the abundance and biomass at, at those sites. Um, and then I also have, as part of the Montana Moth Project, I have a long-term moth monitoring program on the ranch as well. So I have four sites that I set um, a light trap, and we do them every week from April through October. Mm -hmm. And again, it's just looking at abundance and diversity and, and how that might change or shift over the long term as like vegetative changes happen on the ranch with their restoration. You know, in relation, which to, means there was a lot of agricultural fields and exactly that are going back, and they're native. going back and doing a lot of plantings and and things like that, and and then just also in the in the context of like climate change, like you know, are we going to see like, you know, we're trying to at this point that we're entering our third year, we're starting to get really detailed phenology of like flight times and stuff mm -hmm. of these mods, and so you know, when you say phenology, are you how discreet is that? Is that all the way down to you know, not daily, but you know, within weekly time spans, are you going all the way down like the hour? Like okay, this, it's this it's, species is twelve to whatever. No, it's, it's it's pretty broad stroke. It's, yeah. it's you know, we do it on a, a sampling on a weekly basis. So, okay, so we're able to get it like, you know, we. Like for some species now, we can say, okay, like it's got like a six week ply window, you know? Right. Like, and then on this date, it kind of starts and then maybe it peaks like, you know, around this date and then it tails off and then it stops, you know, around the middle of July or something, you know? <laughs> so it's fairly broad. Um, but, you know, will we see, you know, will we see shifts in those phenologies, mm -hmm. you know, as the climate warms? Are they going to go earlier? Right. And are we going to see range expansions, you know, species that may be more southern? Are they going to start coming mm -hmm. up? And, and so that's, that's one of the things that's part of the Montana Moth Project um, on the range. And we don't, we use non-lethal trapping for that. So mm -hmm. we trap live and then literally, um, you know, in, in April, May, Sometimes into June, the mornings are still cold enough, and we get out there before sunrise, and so the moths will still be pretty tame. <laughs> and right. So, and then we photograph, like, every single moth in the trap. But when it gets warmer, we actually, you know, we'll take the traps into tents, and you got moths flying everywhere. And then generally what I do is I use um, – uh, we knock them out a little bit to photograph them. So we just – we'll throw them in a container with a little ethyl acetate for, like, a minute or two just to kind of knock them it doesn't kill them just mm -hmm. knock them out and then we'll but we photograph everything from the macro moths all the way down to your tiny little like one two little millimeter micro moths and yeah. and that's how we get our abundance counts um because it, obviously you can imagine i mean i think last year we photographed like almost twelve thousand moths out of our four sites over from april to 
Now, of course, you can't identify all of those at the time of the photograph. So how many of those are... So I, that's what I spend my, most of my winter doing, <laughs> you know, is uh, identifying moths from photographs, which can be difficult because one thing we're learning, too, is we're not doing a, better, a good enough job of taking um, photographs of the underwings. So some of these species, you know, you, you generally oh. photograph moths or identify moths by their maculation on the mm. forewings and stuff. Right. But... The, the hind wings are really important too in terms of, you know, some of them are kind of smoky gray, others are pure white, you know, and then when you start getting into these really, some of these um, genres that are really similar species, it's the underwing that's going to differentiate it. So, but yeah, that's what I spend my winter doing. Is, is, I mean, we try to keep up with it as much as we can throughout the summer, but. And are you guys, at the same point though, with the undercovers, you guys have to be start noticing some of the, um, What's truly a difference and what's truly a variation within species. You right. Know, that well, and that's the other thing, right, is like there, there is a lot of that going on. Um, different colors, you know. Right. Like there's a dark morph or a light morph and then there's, you know. And it, you look at the DNA and you go, they're not too different. They're no, the same they're the same thing. And so there's a lot of that going on with some, some of the taxa for sure, you know. And so you... You know, over time, you kind of... You work that out, mm -hmm. you know. And, and a lot of times, you know... You, I mean, I'm at a point now where I can be like, yeah, that's a Uzoa or that's a Caradrina or that's, you know, this or that. And so you can get it to genus pretty well. And then from there, it can be difficult. But but for the broader Montana Moth Project, our goal is to sort of better understand the distribution diversity in Montana as a whole. Mm -hmm. and, and how we're doing that is we're collecting and vouchering moths from every county in Montana. Mm -hmm. And we're working with the Gillette Museum. So we, at this point, after two years, I think we've done 22, 23 counties. Mm -hmm. And that's just one site. Ideally, we want to get two sites in, in each county. But so, so it's like a massive survey. It's a broad stroke a, across the landscape. It is broad stroke across the landscape. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's these finite points in time, right? I mean, ideally, we would, we would have, we would sample those sites in, you know, like, May, June, July, August. Because and you have multiple sites at multiple elevations, multiple yeah, habitats. Exactly. But so we're, we're, just, we're just starting. I mean, it's a long-term goal. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we've sent Chuck. And, and bless Chuck's heart. I mean, he, he's a master. He can spread like three or four hundred miles a day, right? <laughs> and so he, he's a machine. So we send all of our specimens. So when we go out to a site, you know, we have we have traps and we lethal trap. We put a little ethyl acetate, mm -hmm. you know, in the traps and leave them overnight. And then we, you know, and then we pack them in freezer, like meal prep containers layered in between thick cotton. And it's like moth lasagnas, right? And we just right. layer the moths, put a layer of cotton, label them with the site. And then we ship them all to Chuck. And he spreads them, identifies them, curates them. And I think now we're up to... Well, I mean, we're not for sure, but it's it's approaching like the largest collection of Montana moths in the country. And it actually maybe in North America, maybe even in the world. I mean, we're up to like, I think we've sent him like 18,000 moths over the last two years, you know. Uh, and I've been down I'm there. sure that room smells oh awesome. God. Well, and you know, it's all housed at the Gillette Museum down there. And so we've actually bought him, I think we're at four or five 20 to four drawer cabinets. Um, just to house all the moths. Just to house all the moths. Um, and so, you know, this year we're hoping to, um, you know, get maybe 10 or 15 more counties. But we're also just trying to target um, 
some of our special habitats in Montana. Mm -hmm. So last year we had, we got a little grant, some generous support from the Eastern Wildlands chapter of uh, Wild Montana. Mm -hmm. And we did a bunch of work in the priors, which was super awesome. Which should be really weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was super. I mean, I had never been to the priors until last year and just that red desert, like, yeah, just really super cool. And the, so there's a little plant down there called Physaria pachyphila. It's a little low-growing bladder pod mm -hmm. thing. And, and so there's a gypsum mine that's proposed in that area. And so the, um, some folks have petitioned to list that plant um, as threatened. Mm -hmm. And so we, were, we thought, well, heck, well, nobody really knows much about the pollination ecology of it. And so, you know, we were like, well, what if moths do? And I, I guess I should back up that that's some of the work that we've been doing too. We've been using this meta barcoding mm -hmm. to look at moth pollination, potential pollination interactions by, you know, excising their proboscis and swabbing their thorax. So you're even getting what they're pollinating. Potentially, yeah. Or what, at least what the plants they're interacting with. Mm -hmm. um, and you can use that DNA barcoding method to... So you, you can identify what, like, if you have a pollinium, you can sequence the DNA in it and tell, like, really pretty confidently in a lot of cases, they're like genus at least, mm -hmm. what plant that pollen came from. Okay. So really cool technique. It's a lot like the, you know. So the now this really ties in the concept because now you're, all, you're going all the way down to the plants. They're going, hey, they yep. need this, this species. Yep, yep. 99% of it, it comes from this one plant. Right, right. And, and moths, um, you know, are, I mean, in all phases of their life cycle, they're, they're tied to plants. Mm -hmm. You yep. know, they lay their eggs on plants. The caterpillars feed on plants. A lot of the adults nectar on plants, you know. So every phase of their life cycle is tied to plants. And, and that's one of the reasons why, they, in my opinion, they're really great you know, like indicators really mm -hmm. of like um, environmental health, you know, because if you have a really diverse sort of, you know, area of vegetation, you're probably going to have a, a highly diverse community of moths as well. Um, and there's some moths that, you know, are like generalists, so to speak. So they'll lay their eggs and the larvae will feed on, you know, like hardwood shrubs it's kind of mm -hmm. just like a general category right and it could be a lot of different right. shrubs or, or, or a certain family or something you know um, but there's others that are real specific um, especially like the flower moths stuff like that mm -hmm. so anyway we were like well geez let's see if they're you know what about moths where are moths like interacting with this fisari at all and so um, we went down there that was part of the project and then we also were just doing a general inventory and we actually, we collected like 90 moths for pollen sampling and it was about like 40, 35, 40 species maybe. And we were actually, we detected uh, the Physaria pollen on five specimens from four different species. Okay. So now we're already necked down to like this real yep. narrow band. Real narrow band. And in fact, one of the species that we detected the pollen on was one that we probably knew we were going to get the pollen because we collected it nectaring on the Physaria. Right. <laughs> it was a little Spilotus, which are, they're almost like a ground dwelling moth. They, we rarely see them fly. They kind of, they're like a groundling moth. They, they sort of hang out on the ground a lot. They just walk along? And... Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird. I mean, they do fly, you know, and obviously they fly to our sheet and stuff, but 
but if you a lot of times if you walk around the sheet you'll see these things that are just kind of on the ground you know and and, and this five is a really low cushion plan mm -hmm. so so that was really cool we were like, that, that really makes excited. me wonder about there because when you get down there you have the you have the pilot bats yeah which are odd bats because they hunt on the ground right they don't hunt in the air they actually fly to the ground yeah and walk. scurry around yeah. so are they feeding on those moths that are also on the ground I'm, I'm everything's sure. low I'm, I'm sure they probably are you know i mean if yeah. they could i mean because these things i mean like i said they can fly but i mean and for people that never seen the habitat like when you go to uh, the prior mountains when you're out in these big just like you said, it's that red desert flats mm -hmm. between there and Bighorn Canyon. Yep. Anything taller than a foot is kind of an anomaly. It's like oh, it's yeah. like a landmark on the terrain. So everything oh, is sure. super low to the ground. Yep. And there's lots of uh, 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 what do they call it? Creptic soils, you yep. know, that with the living lichen all over the soil. Yeah, so there's like everything is super low to the ground. Yeah, it is. It's, it's very very few like bushes of any kind mm -hmm. you know i mean the rabbit brush is about the only yeah, thing yeah, out yeah. there that's of any size you know yeah, and it's a landmark which is really huge because you know we rabbit brush is uh if you want to see moths or catch moths or whatever in the fall rabbit brush is well it's the one because you got the rabbit brush you got the croissant you got the rabbit brushes blooming in the fall um mm -hmm. Big sagebrush is blooming in the fall. Yep. So like you've necked it down to like this. Just have those few species. And, and and then, you know, as far as the general inventory, I mean, I think we, at this point, you know, a lot of this stuff is still, we're still sort of identifying stuff and vouchering stuff. But I mean, we pulled at least 12 state records out of there. Um, out of the briars. Out of the briars. Which makes sense. Yeah, know. which makes sense. And, and a lot of these sort of desert, like, great basin, for example, one of them, this was, um, and Chuck is a Shinia specialist. So mm -hmm. Shinia is a genus of moths that, uh, they're called the flower moths. And so they, they're really, like, have specific host plants. And, the you know, the adults will kind of rest up in the petals during the day or whatever, and then nectar, and then the... the you, mean, you literally mean they're associated with the... Yeah. A genus or a species. Yeah. With a specific, and that's where they're hanging out. That's where they hang out. That's where they lay their eggs. That's where they nectar. I mean, it's like that's, they only exist because that, like, plant oh, wow. is there. Um, and so there's this one called Shinia snow eye, which, if you look at the moth photographers group, it's like a kind of the, yeah. you know, from Mississippi State, it's like the sort of the go to for like uh, moth information. Well, previously, and Chuck even said, you know, it was only known from like Colorado, Utah, um, I think maybe in Nevada a little bit. But are they like point locations? Yeah, they just, like, they just put yeah. a point location here or there. And there might be more distribution than what's on those maps. Those maps haven't been updated in a lot. But, but now we're finding it right in the same sort of habitats in the Priors Desert. You know? Right. And that, that was for a lot of these new records. They were all these sort of desert, Great Basin sort of associated species that we're finding in in the priors now and, and another example was as we went to the centennial sand hills mm -hmm. um the, you know, conservancy property down yeah. there by red rocks super cool area and so we came up with a a, a dune specialist moth there capabiliferon matrinatum that was only known basically from like mono lake and southeastern oregon and some of those dune areas mm -hmm. We found it, and we found it in abundance there. Like, I mean, I think, I, I think I collected 160 some. 
specimens right. of this, you know? And so, so a lot of it, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like the, going back to the flamethrower owl thing, right? Like yeah. these are all species and taxa that we, if you look at the range maps and you look at their natural history and information that's what's known, they probably occur in Montana. It's just that there hasn't been but a survey. But to look. Right. right. You know, and so. What is it? Beautiful tiger beetle is on those dunes in yeah. the Centennial Valley. All right. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so now we're going to go like this summer, we're going out to Medicine Lake because that's the only other dune system, you know, in Montana. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go out there and look for some different shinyamas because some of the... Um, Host plants grow out there, and so so really neat stuff. Um, you know, we I think we're starting to compile our list, and I think in two years now we're up to thirteen or fourteen hundred probably. Mm -hmm. So my biggest thing on all these moz studies. So you have all this. You're doing all this data on moz. There's people doing data on all the night jars. Mm -hmm. We talked about flammulateds. We alluded to bats. Mm -hmm. How does the night shift all allocate across different genera of prey species? So you have all these moths flying. They're, fly, they're doing different things from like you were talking about that species. That's the groundling moth mm -hmm. all the way to high elevation. Mm -hmm. How are all these predators either temporally or layers of altitude, let's call it. How are they segmenting their prey opportunities? Well, that's that's interesting. Um, you know, we actually published a paper um, last year mm -hmm. and we kind of looked at that across the suite of of the species and how they may be partitioning. And what we kind of determined was, um, well, what we found was is that there was way fewer uh, eared moths. So moths, noctuid moths in particular, and some sphinx moths, they actually have um, tympana, right, on right. their bodies that they can hear. And so there's been this kind of like evolutionary arms race, arms race, the, if you will, or back and forth between bats and moths, right? And then the classic ones where if they yeah. hear the bat echolocating, they literally fold up the wings and just yeah, right. fall out of the they sky. They fall out of the sky or they'll do some sort of evasive yeah. maneuver or whatever. And so we found compared to like the, the nighthawks and the... Um, and the owls, of course, mm -hmm. and the, the poor wills that the bats were eating way less of the eared moths compared to those um, nocturnal birds. And so we sort of related that to their hunting strategy, right? right. So, you know, these, these moths have evolved this like, you know, counter to the bat echolocation, mm -hmm. right? Which makes it harder for the bats to, you know, catch them and eat them. Whereas these like, you know, this poor will is sort of like a perch and pop like almost a fly catching right. thing, you know, where it uses more of its vision and things like that to see the moth fly by, just kind of fly catches it, right? Right. And Nighthawk's similar to. When Nighthawk, I, mean, I always call them the whales of the sky. The, way, the whales of the sky. Mouth you, open, just yep. going through. Eating the sky plankton, <laughs> baby. You bet, you know, and that. And so that's one way that they probably are partitioning a little bit, you know, is that, you know, these bats are probably. Looking, you know, they're they're honing in more on these like mosquitoes and midges mm -hmm. and things that nest candidly here, lace wings, things like that. I mean, they're still eating a fair number of moths. Don't get me wrong, but it was by far way more moths in the um, in the diet of the birds, right? So, right. so the birds, the nocturnal birds and bats, are sort of partitioning that way, perhaps. So the, the bats are going more towards like the, the fly end yeah, of the world, yeah, yeah. like the non-hearing type insects mm -hmm. and the. Um, 
the birds are, are eating more of the hearing aids it's just because they don't they can ambush them right right well you know they just they use sight and they ambush them and the or mouth open or mouth open gleaning. just flying through you know, <laughs> and just hit yeah. my rectile bristle and i turn my head exactly and you know what's really interesting is we found actually the most common prey across all of those taxa was crane flies okay Makes sense. Interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, really cool. I mean, we we I think we so across all of them they're saying they're eating the shit. Yeah, all of them are eating the shit out of crane the crane flies, which yeah. is really kind of interesting. Um, well, they're big, they're juicy. They're big, they're juicy. They don't fly very well. You know, um, a lot of them. I think you know. I, I don't think crane flies necessarily are up like super high, uh, like high, or anything. Yeah. I think they're more like around the vegetation and hanging out. You know, mm-hmm. so they're probably easy pickings, especially for like the poor whales, things like that. You know. Um, but that, that was really interesting. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think they're partitioning at least the birds and the bats a little bit. That's how they're sort yeah, so of... they're doing it on this moth dividing line. Or at least the eared moth. At least the eared moth dividing line, yeah. Ears with real serious air quotes. Right. <laughs> it's right. a different kind of ear. <laughs> right. Now with bats, it gets way more complicated. In fact, we're, we're in the process of analyzing all that data right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, there is, I've, I've come across papers where, you know, based off of like their morphology and echolocation behavior, that bats actually do partition the vertical airspace, mm-hmm. you know, to where they, so they're not like, like interfering with each other's echolocation and, and things like that. Um, and then of course there's different foraging modes, right? You can put them in the guilds, like, you know, some bats kind of use an edge space where they, you know, will hunt around. Like the the you know the the ten or fifteen feet or whatever around like around a like tree or a canopy or exactly. Something. Whereas like a hoary bat, for example, and yeah, you can see that reflected in their morphology and their echolocation behaviors. Whereas like a hoary bat is you know really stout, long, like narrow wings, right. like high wing loading, high aspect ratio, meant to just like a cover cover like ground. a fast flyer, right? Right. And so it detects its prey from quite a ways away. And then just basically blitzkriegs. Right. You know, whereas whereas these other ones, you know, have wider wings, shorter wings. They're more maneuverable. Then you get like trawling species. Like I think the little brown bat is like a trawling where they, they literally just fly above like a river mm. or calm water. Right. And just like scooping up the midges that are emerging or whatever, things like that. Um, and so there's some partitioning going on that way. Well, even um, partitioning with the, with the feeding buzzes, right? Because yeah. those yep. feeding buzzes... Yep. Are only reflecting off of certain sizes. Like right, if you're right, exactly. too small or too big. Exactly. <laughs> and so their characteristic frequencies, I get and I, I'm not a bad expert. I mean, I've learned steep learning curve, and Nate's been teaching me a lot about this. But yeah, you'll have like, and that's how they identify bats with echo, right? It's right. Like, you know, they'll have like a characteristic frequency that's a certain kilohertz or whatever, right. a range, and that's kind of what they're using. And you've gone, out, you've gone out with the bat finder? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And actually, Nate's got me now where I, it's it's like this microphone that I put on like a weather stand and I put it on a piece of conduit and it's like so when I go out to do moths oh it's recording all the feeding it's, it's just recording everything and it's like got a big box and I just set it up and turn it on and <laughs> give him the the card at the end of the year you like even, you know, even from the house here I went out uh, Tom Forwood had the the state of Montana's mm-hmm. one and only. <laughs> bat finder box <laughs> oh yeah and we went out just on the river here and i think we ended up with like six species yeah 
That's amazing, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, that's that. That's yeah, amazing. yeah, those are really cool. I think the Sonobat or whatever it's called, right? Does it yeah. tell you like in real time? Yeah, yeah. This microphone Nate's got, it's like, it's it's like big time. Like yeah. it records like continuously and like and it's then highly data, sensitive and data like, analysis of all yeah, the feeding buzzers. I have no idea. <laughs> the only thing, the only thing I know about bats. Well, I know. A little bit of bats. My favorite is is mm-hmm. there's only in Montana. There's only one audible bat. Oh, really? You can actually hear spotted bat. Oh, okay. So their feeding buzz is actually audible. Oh, wow. So if you ever go out like to the CMR on the Missouri River, yeah, and you get around spotted bat, you can actually hear them. Oh, be darn! Let's keep an ear out for that. That's pretty cool. Unless you're <laughs> going deaf like me. Yeah. So you you find this partitioning. Mm-hmm. In prey species, which mm-hmm. obviously, well, they might not be happening at different times of night, but they're at least segmenting themselves somehow. Right, right. And, and you know, I'm not, you know, getting down to the natural history of some of these insects, like, you know, what... In what like you know level of the vertical airspace are they mm-hmm. predominantly flying and stuff like that? It, it can be challenging because mm-hmm. there's just not a lot of like information known about it right Um, but we're that's one of the things we're looking at with our bad paper now is we broke it down into so we actually measured so we took the top 20 prey taxa um across all the bats Mm -hmm. and then i i identify we we got those like taxonomically sort of like into like at least genus or whatever and then i sent those they call them bins barcode Mm -hmm. index numbers and so i sent those bins to the lab and they actually pulled specimens and measured the length, width, depth of them and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're including size, um, and we're also looking at like diel activity. So we're, are they crepuscular, nocturnal, or, when are or they, diurnal? When are they taking that, off? Right, because then that can give you an idea of like, okay, if if you get like a, a house fly, a moose fly, or a moose mm-hmm. fly in the diet, and it's diurnal, then right. they're probably, that bat is probably gleaning it in the evening right it's probably right that, that flies probably, or they're catching it just like that little cusp that little cusp before like a big brown something. bat you'll see those things out yep. early exactly and so and, and then we're also looking at um so there's been a lot of speculation about like um by the biomechanical limitations of bat bite force and their dentiaries related to insect hardness mm-hmm. um and i think you know like big brown bats are presumed to eat a lot of beetles and stuff which we interestingly haven't Found there most of what we found them eating is crane flies and moths, with some beetles. Right. So now, is that because there's not a little? Well, there's always a lot of beetles. I mean, there's always a lot of beetles, but right. And the flying beetles or right, and it also could be like a primer issue. So yeah. you know, this DNA barcode is not perfect, and so certain certain insect taxa, like they kind of use like a universal primer mm-hmm. to you know amplify this DNA, right. and so. Certain taxa of insects maybe don't amplify as well as others. There has to be so there could there could be a bias in the in the DNA. Sequence. And there might have to be a new primer. Yeah, and there are new. You primer run run primer for this. Yeah, exactly. You run another primer for that. Exactly, and so there could be some of that going on. Um, but so we're including that, and so I've um, I found some papers where folks actually used like scissors. They went and collected a bunch of insects, and they actually used scissors to cut them. Latitude and longitudinally, and then measured like the force. Oh, it took to go through to, to cut through the and and they basically what this one paper found was um, that on average, so like for the same size beetle or moth, 
the the beetle is three times harder right than the opera the same size moth right and so what we did was is we took our size data and then they found a really distinct relationship between insect length and hardness so like the longer the bug the harder it's going to be or whatever the harder it'll be chewed well it'd be the difference between like crusty bread and wonder bread yeah right right still, i could eat both but <laughs> right, right. if i'm going to eat it all day long i'm going to go with the wonder bread exactly and so we sort of developed a ranking system of where like mayflies for example are like the softest right and then like you know, in general, like Neuroptera, like the lacewings and moths and um, some of the flies, uh, minus like the midges and, you know, mosquitoes, which might be more like into the mayfly category, are like, you know, similar hardness. And then your beetles are your hardest, right? But then there's a length relationship too, right? So there's certain soft-bodied beetles that they consider soft-bodied, right? And so, so we looked at our length data and all our measurements and stuff. And we kind like of grease beetles where they have that real yeah, soft, yeah, real yeah. soft, um, and some of the like, um, some of the, like flower beetles and mm-hmm. things like that. And uh, so we came up with this ranking system of like one to four, and then so we sort of ranked the prey. Um, Hardness, hardness yeah. from one to four, like one being the softest, four being the hardest. And then, so for example, like our largest beetle in the diet, I think was um, a carabid beetle. It was like 15 millimeters long. Right. Something like that. It's a so, big honker. But we also found some really large sphigids moths. So mm-hmm. like this Pachy Sphinx, it's called. And it's a really large moth. It's like 38 millimeters long, its body. And so that's a so that's a hummingbird size. It's it's a big moth. It's with hum, with sphinx moth. Yeah, no, but that's like a hummingbird size moth. It's a big moth, yeah. and and so according to this paper that we sort of based these these things off, and they had an equation that you could like actually you know type in and yeah. you know, get the, but they the the moth would have to be two and a half times the length of a beetle to be the same hardness. And so for, right. for like so for like the Packy Sphinx moth, I put it as like a four, right? So it, it would be the same hardness as a little tiny as, hard as a fourteen millimeter hard beetle, right? So, right. And, and other folks have looked at sclerotization, like so, what's the level of sclerotization? But when I started looking into the data of that, I was like, that's really kind of subjective, right? You know, like right. how how and there's not a lot of data that says okay, this is like a high scler- you know, highly sclerotized insect, and this is a lowly, scler- you know what I mean? So. So anyway, we're, we're incorporating the size, the diel activity, the hardness, and um, like its primary habitat, right? So mm-hmm. like if it's like larvae or like primarily like river, like freshwater, or, and some of the natural history of the insects, and we're all going to we're putting that sort of into a model to see if we can determine any of these fine scale. You know, is there any like these fine scale things that? The bats are using to partition. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, our like myotis bats that are really closely related and similar hunting styles. Right. Is one like using a different foraging mode to get like softer, weak flying prey versus like, you right. know, another one's using a slightly different foraging mode and echo behavior to get something that's a little stronger flying and a little harder. And that actually just might be distance from vegetation and the canopy or exactly. altitude. Exactly. And, and you know, in another paper I read, there could be just simply that they're, to avoid competition, they forage in different areas. So they're foraging the same habitat, but one goes over here and one goes over here. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and in the summertime, there was one study done that showed that when insects are abundant in early summer, that the bats are actually competing more for sound space, they called it. 
right? Mm -hmm. So it's that vertical partitioning. So the, because the prey is abundant, right? So they're not really necessarily competing for the prey. You guys take the low level. We'll take the mid. We'll take the Those mid. Those guys we'll take will take the high. Above. Exactly. So we're hoping to flesh some of that out um, with this, you know, this new study we're doing. So that being said, we've talked a shit ton. <laughs> we've talked a lot. I talked your ear off. <laughs> so how, how do people reach out to you if they're interested right. in data and research? And you bet. You bet. So we've got a website. It's uh, nrres.org. Um, we're also on Facebook. So you can look us up in Northern Rockies Research and Educational Services there. Um, and, you know, we've got an email listed mm -hmm. on the, you know, our website or um, on the Facebook. You can, you have an option on the uh, website to actually sign up for, um, you know, we try to do newsletters, mm -hmm. things like that. So you can sign up to keep, um, you know, keep up to speed there. Um, and then, you know, our Facebook page, we try to, you know, especially this time of year, I mean, the winter, it gets a little bit, we don't do a great job. There's not of a like, lot of flying. <laughs> right. So, but in the, in, the, in the summer, you know, we're, we're pretty good about, you know, Updated. posting about what we're doing and, and cool mods we're finding or whatever. Um, but yeah, you could you could reach out that way. Um, and yeah, right. and if you well, I have to ask you the operative question we ask everybody. Yeah, what's your spirit animal and why? Hmm. Well, you know it. It traditionally was a, a snowy owl because it was sort of a symbol of this like sort of purity and strength and, and, and stoicism, you know, mm -hmm. just being, um, and not only that, but being sort of like, I guess, I guess kind of being like different than the, all the other owls. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, even though people think that they're diurnal, they're really not, but they're, they're actually muscular, but yeah, but they're actually up there on the tundra, you know, when I was up there, I mean, they're, they're active like all day long kind mm -hmm. of thing, you know? And so they're sort of this outlier, but so the snowy owl was traditionally, my spirit animal snowy owl yeah yeah but you know i might have to go with a moth one of these days <laughs> sphinx moth a sphinx moth well actually you know my favorite moth um is called barencia it doesn't even have a common name it's called uh well it, the shell form brocade i think actually is the common let's name. stay with barencia yeah so it's barencia conchiformis and it's a moth you can find around here locally um in like May, and I call it the the galaxy moth because it's got this like really cool like nebulous white patches on its um, forewings, but then it's got this like iridescent green like speckling all over its forewings. It's a really beautiful moth. So anyway, there you go. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt. Yep, thank you, Rad. I appreciate it. All righty. <laughs>